Okay, we are on our temporary schedule, and maybe it will only be this week. For those of you who are listening, the primary reason is that the Beltway 8 that runs just, um, just west of the church, runs north and south, is the major north, one of the major north-south arteries going across to the southern part of Buffalo Bio in Houston, and because it's of the... Wait a minute. Why am I listening to myself on the... What is doing that? I'm hearing myself over my own... There. First time I ever turned myself off. Anyway, the Beltway is is flooded, or has been, but they drained it this afternoon. There's a couple of sinkholes they have to fix. So maybe by this time next week, it's going to be repaired, and that will allow traffic to resume a, a much more normal flow. Until then, uh, a lot of 15 or 20-minute trips are an hour and a half, and that's what's causing the, the problem. So it's good to see those of you who made it here make it here, and we will continue our study uh, now in the afternoon until the freeways straighten out in First Peter. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that we either walk by the Spirit or we walk according to the flesh. We either operate in the power of God's provision through the filling ministry, energizing ministry of God the Holy Spirit, or we do it in our own power. And when we are living our life in the power of the sin nature, walking according to the sin nature, the way to recover is to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, and instantly we're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Now, Father, we're thankful so much that we can be here today. And, Father, we pray for all those in Houston who are uh, working to help other people, that there will be those, they'll be kept safe. There's so many ways in which people can be injured. And, Father, we pray for this congregation. There are about eight families that are dealing with uh, flooding, problems in their homes, water in their homes, and those difficulties. We pray that you would provide uh, quick Solutions and Father, in the process that we as a body of believers can come together to encourage and to support them and help provide for them. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to study through Peter, and especially as the lessons related to undeserved suffering have tremendous application for us as we go through the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I don't think I turned on the... Screen, so we'll work with that right now. Okay, we are in First Peter. We're continuing our study, 
Uh, last week, since we had not been in First Peter for six months, I did a bit of an overview. And what I'm going to do uh, today is complete some of that overview to get back into the general context and the argument and the structure of of, uh, of First Peter. So what I want to do to, today in this class is to, we're going to look at two things. The conscience, that term is used three times in Peter. It's used in First Peter 3, uh, 16, having a good conscience, and it will be used again in First Peter 3.21, having a uh, good conscience toward God, the answer of a good conscience towards God. So we need to understand that that forms a significant backdrop to what is being said in this particular passage. And then Christ is the example of unjust, uh, unjust suffering. Now what I did the last time, I talked about the fact that as we live within the cosmic system, that is the world system, that we face opposition. That may be light opposition, it may be extreme opposition. There are people and Christians who live in cultures and countries all over this world where there is overt, active, overt persecution, legal persecution of Christians, even if those countries have uh, supposedly freedom of religion. We live in a country in the United States today where we do not have the same, technically, legally, we still have the same le level of freedoms, but socially, we do not necessarily have that same level of freedom that we once had because we're no longer living in a, in a nation and at a time when we have a culture that is dominated by a biblical framework of thinking. And I talked about this last time, in fact, ended uh, toward the end talking about some uh, uh, different companies are rated by some organizations in terms of their congeniality towards Christians or not. And there are a lot of differences in this world and even in our own country. There are different places, different geographical locations, different subcultures. Some are more sympathetic to Christianity and to Christians. Some are less sympathetic to Christ Christians and Christianity. And this was a situation that this congregation faced in Asia Minor at that time. Today, it's central, north, north central Turkey, and they felt, and they represent, uh, or they uh, were specifically persecuted and went through adversity that was directly based to the fact that they were Christians. So I want to talk about two examples that we have to understand from the Old Testament in terms of how we can face the hostility of the cosmic system. So while you keep your place in 1 Peter, you can turn with me to the Old Testament to Daniel. And in Daniel, we have two examples that are given. The backdrop for Daniel is these Jews, Torah-obedient Jews who are following the uh, Mosaic law, especially in relation to the dietary laws, and also in relation to not worshiping uh, graven images, not worshiping idols. And so we have an example in Daniel 1 of one situation, an example in Daniel 3 of another situation. 
reason I bring this up is because last time I used an example of one individual that is a child, son of a pastor who was working for Boeing and in his particular environment he just felt like it was too, too evil, too pagan for him to continue. That is an individual decision. Uh, every one of us at some time or another may be faced with that kind of a decision. It's going to be different for every person depending on who you are, depending on that particular, uh, that particular situation and environment. And we see an example of this in both Daniel 1 and Daniel 3. In Daniel chapter 1, you have all these captives that have been brought from Israel, these young men who are intelligent, they've been tested, they've been evaluated, and they are going to be trained and brainwashed to serve in the bureaucracy in Babylon. And everything in that culture was ultimately tied to their pantheistic pantheistic system. In fact, they're given new names. Their names originally were Daniel, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah, but those names are going to be changed. Daniel was given a new name, Belteshazzar. Uh, Shadrach was uh, uh, the new name for Hananiah. Meshach was the new name for Mishael, and Abednego was the new name for Azariah. And each of those names is related to one of the pagan deities in the Babylonian pantheon. This is the way in which the culture was seeking to control and shape their thinking and conform them to their world system. That's what Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2 talks about, is we're not to be conformed to the world. Don't be pressured into the zeitgeist of the world. So as we look at this particular passage, Daniel recognizes there's a problem because they are going to have to eat the diet that the king provides. And in verse 5, it says, The king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank in three years of training for them so that at the end of the time they might serve before the king. But Daniel does not want to compromise with the Torah. And so he says, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with, por with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So Daniel is going to approach this from the viewpoint of going to the person in authority and negotiating so that he can avoid violating the Torah. And if you read... The, the episode, they devised a test. He said, I and my friends will eat our kosher diet. Everybody else can eat theirs. And in a couple of weeks, you can evaluate us. Or in 10 days, you can evaluate us. And we'll see who's stronger. And it turned out God blessed them. And the four young Jewish men who were not going to compromise were blessed and were stronger than the others. And so they won their case. Now, that happens in some environments, but we see another environment where there's an attempt to negotiate a situation. That's in Daniel chapter 3 when Nebuchadnezzar has built his statue of gold, and he is going to command everyone that they are to, uh, verse 5 of Daniel 3, that they have to bow down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and whoever does not fall down and worship will be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So their conscience, we're going to talk about that tonight, their conscience is established and set by, by the Torah. They are prohibited to worship an idol. Now, they can do one of two things. They can uh, 
uh, obey their conscience, obey the standards of the law, and then they could just, as a lot of Christians do, well, I'll just confess my sin later, or they're going to stand true to their to their faith and their convictions, and so they stand choose that they're going to stand true to their uh, their convictions. They are when the orchestra plays and everybody bows down, they do not bow down, and they are reported to the king. The king gives them another uh, another chance. He has an absolute uh, meltdown of rage and fury. Verse thirteen. But he does give them another chance, and they are going to negotiate with him, and they say down in verse 16, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If that's the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship in the gold image which you've set up. There was no negotiating with Nebuchadnezzar over this. And in some situations, there's no negotiating. There's no way. And what comes into play in this, as we see uh, the term used in First Peter, is, the, is conscience. And conscience has two areas where it's significant. One is an area of absolutes. We have absolutes, thou shalt and thou shalt not, that are set forth in the Scripture. And that's very clear what we can do. But also, there are gray areas. There are the so-called doubtful things in Corinth, where the Corinthian believers were, some were saying, no, you can't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And others were saying, it's okay, idols are nothing. And Paul recognizes that indeed, idols are nothing, and that hasn't tainted the meat in any way, shape, or form. But it could lead to a violation of a weak conscience and therefore cause a spiritual failure in the life of a weaker brother. So that fits this scenario. Sometimes you may be in a situation of employment where you just recognize that there's a line there you can't cross. It's not that some other Christian can't cross it, but you can't cross it. And that's the pattern that we uh, that we will we will look at when we get to First Corinthians, chapter eight in this study. So when we live in the cosmic system, we're always going to have conflicts, and at some point, every individual believer has to decide where that line is—the line that they can't cross, and that they believe, in terms of their own walk with the Lord and their own spiritual life, that they have to they have to take a stand. Sometimes that's more objective, sometimes it's not, depending on their spiritual maturity. Now, as we grow as believers and as our country deteriorates and becomes more and more pagan, I believe that we're going to get into more and more circumstances where, where we, have, we face uh, more overt problems and difficult uh, problems. So, in just a summary of what I've said... First of all, the believer has a set of behavior standards that are provided in Scripture. That, those are non-negotiable. And on the basis of that, it develops our conscience. But every believer really has two consciences. You have the conscience that is built by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in your soul. But you have another conscience that comes out of your flesh. And you have those fleshly standards. And you know what I mean. When you're out of fellowship and you want to do what you want to do, 
you operate on those standards that are consistent with your sin nature. And then when you're walking with the Lord, you have those standards. And that's the fight, that's the struggle in the spiritual life. So the issue is, are we going to operate on the standards of the Word of God that the Holy Spirit has formed in our soul? Are we going to compromise with human viewpoint standards in order to get along? And in this nation, what we've seen is is changes. You can you have pockets of very pro-Christian groups and pro-Christian cultures and pockets of very anti-Christian groups. Some places they can work together. Some places it's more difficult. I had a recent conversation with someone who had spent some time uh, living in California and had a great uh, example. She worked in an industry that was very anti Christian, anti-biblical values, hostile to biblical values. And if you were there and you were working and the weekend was coming and somebody said, what were you doing on the weekend? And you said you were going to go to church, then the response would be, why? And the whole tone was one of judgment and hostility. And so you just basically kept your mouth shut. And there are areas, I've heard in the Northeast, I also saw this in the North. I saw it in the Northeast. I've also know that it happens in the Northwest where it's better, where a lot of Christians just keep their head down because if they make too overt of a statement of their Christianity, then they're going to come under ridicule and hostility, and that's going to create a problem. In other situations, if you're in Texas and somebody says, what are you doing this weekend? And you say you're going to church, they're going to probably say, which church? Where are you? And if you go out to eat in Houston and you bow your head and return thanks before you eat in a public restaurant, sometimes you'll actually have people come up and say, well, I saw you praying before you ate. I, I really liked that. That was just great. And I've had that happen, happen before. But you can go other places and the waiter comes up and starts talking to you while you're praying because he has no clue what you're doing and then he, you know, it, it, it just deteriorates from there. So uh, as we live in a culture that is transitioning to paganism, we're going to come into more and more conflict, and we have to decide the times when we can take Daniel, the Daniel 1 option and the times when we are take the option that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, where there's no negotiation, there's no discussion that... Uh, with with the person who's in authority, and we have to uh, go with whatever the consequences might be. Last time, I stopped a little early because Jim Myers was here. That was two weeks ago. Seems like a lot longer ago than that. And I'm just going to summarize what happens when we're in a test because every one of these things is a test. Sometimes people think that a test is something on the scale of Hurricane Harvey or having your house flooded or having a car stolen or some other major crisis. But a test in Scripture is anything that provides you with an opportunity to choose between obedience to God or disobedience to God. Am I going to walk by the Spirit or walk according to the sin nature? That's a test. It can be very, very small. It can be, affect your attitude. What happens when somebody cuts you off in traffic? You have a choice as to how you're going to respond or react. So we always have two options. We either walk according to the Spirit or by the Spirit. 
Paul uses according to the Spirit in uh, Romans 8, and we apply the teaching of Scripture or opt for the sin nature. Now, this is important because we have to apply. That's an active concept. There are a lot of people who think and have come under a misconception that if I'm just in right relationship, if I've just confessed my sin, if I'm just in fellowship, then everything's fine. That's a passive and non-biblical concept of spirituality. When you're walking by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit is an active concept. It is step-by-step obedience and application by the Spirit. It's not just being passively in right relationship to God. So we have those two options. We either walk by the Spirit or we walk according to the sin nature. Then... Second point is when we choose to obey the word and continue walking by the spirit, this has several other terms in scripture. It's called walking in the light. Notice it's an active term again. 1 John 1.7. 1 John 1.7 is how far away from 1 John 1.9? Two verses. See, it's also walking... It's walking in the light there. It's this active concept to continue to walk or resume our active spiritual growth. We confess sin. Ephesians 5.8 uses the same phrase. Or we're abiding in Christ. We're staying in fellowship. We're continuing. We do that by making right choices and right application. Or walking in the truth, as John also describes it in 2 John 4 and 3 John 3. We've already talked about walking by the Spirit in Galatians 5.16, walking according to the Spirit in Romans 8.4, and living according to the Spirit in Romans 8.8.5. So this test, as James puts it in James 1.2-4, is a test of doctrine or that which we have learned, that which we have been taught in our soul. We learn the Word of God. It it, it, we take it in, we learn it, it's stored in our soul, and then we have to apply it. It doesn't happen automatically just because we're in fellowship. We have to choose to apply that. So this test focuses on our knowledge of God, and uh, that's also called doctrine. That is what the Scripture teaches. We see this in James 1, 2, and 3. My brethren, Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, and that's the word that means testing, or sometimes it means temptation if it's the negative side. Knowing is a participle that means because you know. It's causal, because you know something. That the testing or the evaluation of your faith, that is that which you believe. I had a conversation with Summer with a man whose son had died, and he, he said one of the most profound things I've heard anybody say. I realized I had a choice. For 40 years or over 50 years, I have said and believed certain things about God's timing for death. Now, I could choose to continue that or not. And I said, if I believe that for 50 years, I'm going to continue to believe that. That's the choice, and that's what makes a difference. Some people decide all of a sudden when they hit some experience that they don't believe it anymore. But that's the experience. Because you know that the testing of that tests what we believe. That's the idea there. It's not the act of believing that's being tested. It's the content of what we believe. And that produces endurance. That's how we grow. Tests are designed 
to expose our flaws. It's, our, excuse me, I've re- written that wrong. They're not designed to expose our flaws. Left out an important word. They're not designed to, because the word there, documazo, that's used there is not a word that ha- that's designed to expose your, your, your errors. Look how bad you are. It does that in a secondary sense, but a test is an evaluation to see how much you've learned, not to how much how much you're failing. It's not God saying, "Okay, I'm going to take you through this and show you what a what a loser you are, or how much you haven't been able to apply, or what a failure you are." I'm doing this to show you what you've learned. And of course, in the process, we all realize what we haven't learned and we haven't applied, but that's not the focal point. It's the same word that's used at the judgment seat of Christ, that what is exposed is our success. What's, it's not exposing our sin or our failure. What's left over in the imagery that's used there of taking all of our works and burning them, setting them to the torch, what survives are the gold, silver, and precious stones. So what's being exposed is that which has eternal value rather than that which doesn't. So James 1.3 emphasizes this. We test with the doctrine that we've internalized. Are we able to apply the faith rest drill and to apply what we've learned to the situation? It's all about application, and application is an active concept. It's not just resting we rest in the Lord, but we do what he says. When he says, pray without ceasing, we don't say, okay, that's a great promise. I'm just going to rest in that. What do we do? We pray without ceasing. We do what it says to do. That's the active side of it. We're trusting God. That's the passive side. But it has an active side, which is consistent prayer. Now, when we suffer, when we go through adversity, now, sometimes I have to mention this because there are some people who think of suffering in such an extreme sense that it doesn't apply to them. But suffering in Scripture is any time we experience negative repercussions in life because we're a believer. And it may be from small to large, or it can be just different kinds of adversity because we're living in the devil's world. So why do we suffer? I'm going to give you reasons for suffering. This is ties in with what we're going to see when we study Psalm 107 on Sunday morning and continue that Hurricane Harvey special, which I started this last Sunday. We suffer because we live in a fallen world. It's corrupted by the fall. So that every person we know is, is a corrupt sinner that is controlled by the sin nature. If they are a believer, then maybe they're walking by the Spirit. But if they're not a believer, everything in their life is being motivated and energized by only one source, and that's their sin nature. It produces morality as well as immorality. So we always have to pay attention to that. And that's one of the things uh, young Christians need to pay attention to when they get married because if they marry an unbeliever, they're marrying somebody who doesn't have the option of walking by the Spirit. They're marrying somebody who's totally controlled by their sin nature. That's why Paul says there's what fellowship has light with darkness. This will always lead to problems. You always also have a have the challenge with living with another with a believer that is walking according to the sin nature. 
and you get a believer that's walking according to the sin nature and is not obedient to the Lord, then you're going to have the same category uh, of problems. So if two believers are wanting to walk by the Spirit and let the Spirit change their life, then they can go somewhere. Now, they're both going to fail. They're both going to sin. They're both going to cause problems for the other. But if they are walking by the Spirit, they have a, a means of resolving that. That's the second point. We live with fallen creatures. That means you work with fallen people. You work for a corrupt, fallen person, your employer, your authorities over you, whatever they are, all have sin natures, and they're going to be uh, never be perfect. Government is always going to be flawed because it's dominated and ruled by c corrupt sinners. That is always going to result in producing adversity for those under them, whether it's in the corporate environment, whether it's in the government environment, or whether it's in the family in environment. The other problem is we have to live with our own fallen nature. We have to lend, uh, learn to live with our own sin nature. And we have to deal with that. And as believers, we understand the only way to deal with that is to confess sin and to walk by the Spirit. That the goal the Christian life is part of is walking by the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the fruit, fruits of the Spirit is self-control, self-mastery. It's not saying, oh, I'll just give in today and then confess it and it's okay and I'll keep going tomorrow. That's, that's what an immature believer does. That's not what a mature believer does. Fourth thing we see is not only do we have this internal corruption from our own sin nature, but we live in the devil's world, which leads to opposition, as I've talked about already. It can be from light to severe, and it can be overt, and it can be covert. Satan is a master counterfeiter and a master manipulator, and his enemy is the believer and the body of Christ. Then the seventh point is to understand the purposes of deserved and undeserved suffering. That's what we're talking about in First Peter, because the examples that we've been given and working on in First Peter 2 and 3 and 4 are examples related to a believer who is obedient, but yet obedient to the word and does everything they're supposed to do, but yet they are reaping negative consequences from a uh, from a hostile environment. So when we think about suffering, we can categorize it as deserved or undeserved. In deserved suffering, we have two categories. First of all, they're the natural consequences of our own our own sin or our own bad decisions. We reap what we sow. Galatians six seven. They're just a natural consequence. God doesn't get involved with special discipline at all. It's just that if we make bad decisions, we're going to reap the consequences of those bad decisions. And sometimes, when we, as I was talking about things on, on uh, Sunday with Psalm 107, is that sometimes you can pass a test and make fairly good decisions, but after that, you can make bad decisions and then you reap consequences from your bad decisions. Even though you aren't under 
under uh, divine discipline to begin with. You're just going through undeserved suffering, and then you make bad decisions in the process, and that causes uh, more complications. So we have just the natural consequences of our own sin, our own bad decisions. And second, you have an intensification of that where God takes you personally through some consequences that are much more difficult. He ratchets up the discipline in order to teach us a lesson. For undeserved suffering, there's various purposes for undeserved suffering. This is suffering that we don't can't directly tie any choice that we've made to. We're just going through undeserved suffering. Now, when we have a hurricane like we have, that the Matthew 5:40, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and the sun shines on the evil and the good. So we have undeserved blessing as well. But because we live in a fallen world, we have undeserved suffering. But God still, within the framework of that undeserved suffering, can use it in the life of the believer for various reasons, one of which is it can give us a wake-up call to evangelism. And we think about people we know who may have had their life put in jeopardy in a storm or some other situation, and we realize we need to be telling people the gospel. We need to be informing them of the of God's news, not just putting it off. What would have happened if the circumstances had been just a little bit different? Perhaps that person may have lost their life and we've procrastinated in giving them the gospel. Also for the believer, undeserved suffering is related to spiritual growth. Every time there's adversity, we have the opportunity to either apply the word or to be disobedient and not apply the word. When we go through undeserved suffering, we have the opportunity to respond by using the problem-solving devices, using those spiritual skills that we've talked about many times. First, make sure you're in fellowship. Make sure you're walking by the Spirit. Then you apply promises through the faith rest drill. You are oriented to God's grace. You're humble. You're teachable. You're oriented to doctrine and God's plan for your life. And then you operate on the principle of... of um, living your life t today in light of eternity, your personal sense of your eternal destiny. All of those are very, very important. And then you can go on to your personal love for God and your impersonal love for all mankind, your uh, sharing uh, your occupation with Christ, and then sharing God's happiness. All of those are tools we use, and each one has a whole matrix of subdivisions in terms of application. In terms of undeserved suffering, we witness to others. That's what we see in Job, that we're witnessing not only to humans, but we're also a witness to the angels. We're providing evidence within the angelic conflict. Now that's important as just sort of a lead-in introduction because in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, once we get into the uh, into verse 19, and we're talking about uh, Jesus proclaiming to the, his victorious proclamation to the spirits in prison, that's to the fallen angels, we immediately bring, relate our suffering to the angelic conflict. 
It's a witness to unbelievers. They see a difference in our lives, which gives rise to the question of 1 Peter 3.15. Why do you have this hope uh, within you? So we have an opportunity to explain our faith to unbelievers. And then last, in a time of crisis and adversity, we demonstrate to others that there really are answers and that we can maintain our faith and witness no matter how bad things get. Terms of un- fourth point in terms of undeserved suffering is that it's a testimony and encouragement to other believers. As they see us respond positively, that encourages them to follow our leadership and to do the same thing. And fifth, it brings joy to our own souls and glory to God. We see this at the end of 1 Peter 4.13. The context is the fiery trial that comes upon us in uh, 4.12. And in 4.13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Notice rejoice, glad, and exceeding joy are all connected there to glory. And those concepts of joy and glory are often tied together as we read through uh, 1 Peter. Now, a while back, I put this chart together in order to help us think through how we handle adversity. As we face it, we have the adversity in the context of hostility or persecution, and it can be unfair and unjust. Sometimes it comes from people who have some problem with Christianity and we're a Christian, and so therefore they jump to conclusions. One of the things that happens in our world today is there are various moral issues, for example, the issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage, and there are so many Christians that make this some kind of a super sin that there's and, and have been very bitter and hostile towards homosexuals that when you come along as a Christian that's grace-oriented, it's not that you're justifying the sin, but you realize that homosexuality is just another sin like any other sin in terms of its violation of the righteousness of God, it may have social consequences that are more significant than other things, but that's between them and the Lord. We're going to deal with them in grace and in kindness as opposed to legalistic Christians who don't, but you'll run into homosexuals, and as soon as they find out you're a Christian, they immediately pigeonhole you in the category of the non-grace-oriented, legalistic, hostile Christian, and then they're going to put a target on you and go after you. And it may not be that issue. I can name a dozen other issues that they will leap to conclusions that you are uh, you're conservative. Okay, so you hate me for this and hate me for that, and and they immediately uh, start reacting and going after you. We have problems with system testing. There's a lot of people in this congregation, perhaps, that will go through system testing after, uh, after the hurricane because of dealing with government bureaucracy or insurance bureaucracy or other things of that nature. We have... Uh, a hostility that comes in the form of health attacks. We live in the fallen world or finances and just limitations on our freedom. Most people in this country who are over the age of 80 recognize a loss of personal freedom that those under the age of 30 have no idea that they are missing. 
and this country has changed radically and it's been enforced on us by the courts but they still use the language of freedom but it's been changed all of this is to limit the impact of biblical christianity on the culture so whenever we face adversity whatever the category is or whatever the source solutions always the same and that solution is to trust the lord and to use the faith rest drill which undergirds every other uh, spiritual skill that i've talked about and those uh, 10 uh, problem solving devices are important so we are we either go in that direction or we go in human viewpoint direction where we try to solve all of our problems ourselves. We either, the first category can be summed up as we cast our care upon the Lord. We turn it over to him and we apply the word in all the different areas of the problem-solving devices, or we try to do it ourselves, and that always comes out of the sin nature. So that's basically a very simple way to look at every decision in life, we're either going to operate on divine viewpoint or we're going to operate on human viewpoint. To operate on divine viewpoint, you have to know the word, not just know the doctrines, the summaries, uh, the theology, but know the word because that's what God the Holy Spirit is going to use in our lives to change us. Now, here's another chart I put together talking about adversity and prosperity for testing believers. Now, this is important for what we're going to cover in the, in the next two chapters in Peter, and we're also going to see it as we talk about adversity and prosperity in Psalm 107. We have direct testing, which is sometimes uh, d deserved suffering, and then also in terms of deser deserved suffering, there's indirect testing okay what do i mean by that well in terms of direct testing this is directly tied to sinful choices and actions we get involved in some sort of sin maybe it's let's say alcohol abuse maybe it's gossip or slander and we get taken to court or it is uh, some criminal act any number of different things and as a result we go through uh, self-induced misery, negative consequences. This can also involve foolish choices. They're just not wise. Maybe they can be traced back to arrogance. A lot of times uh, foolish choices can be traced back to arrogance, but they're not wise. They're not the skillful application of Scripture. And you see that a lot uh, in people's lives. They just make self-centered, arrogant choices that are foolish and that causes problems. Uh, then you have divine discipline. That's directly tied to specific choices. And that's all related to suffering for discipline, that God is training us. Indirect testing, well, we have Satan's cosmic system. We live in the cosmic system. Day in and day out, we're going to face problems. We live with fallen creatures. You may be walking by the Spirit, but your spouse may not be. That works the other way sometimes, too. And so you're, asso you're associated with fallen creatures. Your children are fallen creatures. Your parents are fallen creatures. Your siblings are fallen creatures. The people you work with, the CEO of your company, the, the board of the company, the management of the company can make 
foolish decisions in terms of what they do and investments and next thing you know their bottom line changes their profit margin shifts and you no longer have a job so we can suffer by association with fallen creatures even though um, it, it's indirect even though it's no direct decision of our own and we suffer for growth we suffer for evidence and we suffer for blessings. So these are just some ways to summarize what I've just said and to keep in mind as we uh, face suffering. So 1 Peter 3 and verse 14 through 16, we see an important setup here. And the, this is the previous passage. We've gone over this section several times, but I want to bring out a couple of other things. Peter says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, it's undeserved suffering. You're doing everything right, but you're suffering. You're going through adversity. He says, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Now, normally when we think of somebody who's blessed, that's when things are going well for them. But you can make a bad decision and you're suffering, I mean, a good decision and do everything right, but because of the hostility of the cosmic system, you're going to suffer, and that adversity is actually a blessing. Think about that. And so then Peter says, don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Don't be intimidated by the opposition of the cosmic system. It may be where you work, it may be in your family, it may be at school, but don't be intimidated by the opposition of the, of the, uh, of the, of the um, people who are persecuting you. So what should you do in that situation? They've set up this opposition, and you're not going to fall for their intimidation. You're going to continue to walk by means of the Spirit, and you're going to have a positive mental attitude, and they're going to see the joy of the Lord in your life. That's just going to anger them even more. But for some, they may say, why in the world, with all this pressure, are you still expressing joy and happiness in your life? And they ask for the, this hope that is in you. So you get a chance to answer and to give a reason for the hope that is in you and explain the gospel and answer their questions, which we spent six months studying. And how do you do that? Well, sometimes when we're in situations under pressure, we react from our sin nature and we're impatient, we're angry, and we're a little resentful. So Peter makes sure we understand that we're to do this with meekness, and that's a Greek word, praute, which means humility, and with fear, the idea of respect. So we're calm and we're respectful in the way in which we answer. So, so far, we're in a situation where we do the right thing and we suffer for it. Then we're asked a question, and the way we answer and respond to that is still in obedience, in humility, and in, in respect. And then we have a result. Now, if you look at the translation in your New King James Version, it just translates that participle at the beginning of verse 16 as having a good conscience. But those kinds of participles have other various nuances, and in this case it's not translated as such, but it's really a participle of result. We answer with meekness and fear, and, it ha and the result of that is a good conscience with the result that you have a good conscience.
Now, I want to talk a minute about what it means to have a good conscience because that is directly related to action, and that is the word good conduct at the end of 3.16. So let's look at this word, this term conscience in the Greek. It's the Greek word sunedasis, and its root has to do with knowledge, and it came to refer to uh, specific knowledge in relation to our past actions and then eventually it came to have the idea of evaluating those past actions uh, with regard to the future that you weren't just looking back to look back but you look back in order to evaluate past behavior so that you could improve on the future and so it developed this idea of determining right and wrong. And so we normally think of the conscience as that part of the soul that where our standards reside, that which is good and that which is evil, that which is right and that which is wrong. Now, a lot of people, when they look at the, the, the conscience, they get a little bit of a distorted meaning and think of it in a passive sense. So I want to give you a few points in terms of the conscience and what we learn in Scripture. First of all, in terms of the definition, which I just mentioned, the conscience is that part of the soul in every person, because even unbelievers have a conscience, in every person that stores their norms and standards for living. It's their values, their sense of right and wrong. Unbelievers have value systems. Sometimes they're, they're really distorted. And that's because in terms of the second point, norms and standards are shaped by our culture. So if you live in a culture such as the uh, Sawi tribe in Papua New Guinea, where the highest value is to be able to so deceive someone that it costs them their life, then that's your highest standard. The whole culture is based on deception. And so some cultures, the greatest value is uh, how you can take advantage of others, how you can con other people. Those are their, that's their value system. Uh, how much you can control other people. Maybe their norms and standards are determined by how they, how much money they can make. Culture, family, peers, uh, professors, educators, all shape a norm or a standard. But the third point is the only basis for norms and standards for the believer is the Word of God. The Word of God provides the absolutes thou shalt and thou shalt not but human viewpoint has its own set of standards and this is what we find mentioned in uh, several passages in the old testament i put two up here isaiah 5:20 and malachi 2:17 in isaiah 5:20 isaiah says woe to those who call evil good and good evil that's like the sawi people they have defined good as something that is inherently evil, and they have defined evil in terms of that which is inherently good. So they've just switched, and their right and wrong is a polar opposite of what it should be. In Malachi 2.7, Malachi is indicting the Israelites and says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In other words, they're claiming to be just and okay. How have we wearied him? And Malachi's example is, well, in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. 
or where's the God of justice? And the point is that they're, they're switching right with wrong. So human viewpoint has its own set of standards, which is not what the Word of God says. So just because you have a conscience doesn't mean your conscience is filled with the right norms and standards. Your conscience on human viewpoint can be filled with wrong norms and standards, and we have to change that. So when you become a believer, that doesn't happen automatically. When five minutes after you become a believer, maybe five years after you become a believer, if you're not learning the Word of God, your conscience is still based on human viewpoint. It's still based on your culture. It's not based on the Word of God. So just because you're a believer doesn't automatically give you that new conscience that's filled with norms and standards that come from the study of God's Word. And as you grow, now you have two consciences. You have one related to your sin nature, and you follow that when you're out of fellowship and you're walking according to the sin nature. And when you're walking according to the Spirit and you're walking in right relationship with God, then the result is something different. You have a different set of norms and standards, and that's the tension in the spiritual growth of the believer. When we operate on our sin nature, we compromise with it, and we say, well, what is it going to matter? This isn't a big thing. It has a negative impact on our own conscience. It defiles that conscience so that we, we start to build as it were, a callous around our conscience so that we no longer listen to it. And there are words that are used of this in the Scripture. For example, in Titus 1.15, it has the idea of a mind and a conscience that's defiled. He writes, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving. And he's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about those who are rejecting the truth of Scripture Nothing is pure, but their mind and their conscience are defiled. You can defile your new conscience with your disobedience to God. And then the passage I referenced earlier in terms of a weak conscience is seen in 1 Corinthians 8. And I put three verses up here because these are the ones that are really at the heart of the argument. I don't want to go through an exposition of 1 Corinthians 8, but the issue there is meat sacrifice to idols. And Paul says, however, there is not everyone that has this knowledge. By that he means that really it doesn't make a difference whether you eat meat or not. It's a gray area. It's, it, it is an issue of your, your own, it's between you and the Lord as to how you're going to handle that. And he says, there's not in everyone that knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol. That's because they're a baby believer they're conscious of the idol, conscious of the idol, and so they continue uh, to eat. And if they think that eating it is eating meat that's been sacrificed to idol, uh, to an idol is actually has some reality, then their conscience is weak. It hasn't been informed by Scripture yet, and so eating meat sacrificed to an idol, they think has some reality. And so when they do it, it negatively impacts their spirituality. Their, their conscience is defiled. And the reason is, even if our conscience has a value that may not be biblically correct, when we violate that norm, 
we're setting a pattern in our soul of violating norms, whether they're right or wrong. And that causes a habit pattern where, where, where we improve our ability to rationalize against our conscience. And so it defiles the conscience as a principle. Verse 10 says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols. And what happens when he does it, because he's not doing it out of knowledge or spiritual maturity, it's spiritually harmful for him because he hasn't grown to where he can do it. And so this, Paul says, is a sin against the brethren. And it wounds their weak conscience, and so it's a sin against Christ. In other words, you have sometimes you have to think about your actions that while they may not be sinful, they may be in a gray area, there may be someone who, now you can get all wrapped around the axle on this, but it may be that in that situation, usually this is applied to drinking. And so I've heard people say, well, if somebody sees you having a glass of wine at the restaurant and their weakness is alcoholism, they'll use that to justify uh, and and they'll they'll start drinking again. That's not the, that's not how this works. As Dr. Ryrie used to say, for something to, something to be a stumbling block, people have to be moving. Okay, so the person who sees a believer across the restaurant and and sees them have a glass of wine and they justify that uh, to sin, they're not moving anyway. Okay, they're they're just looking for an excuse. To, to fall off the wagon. So what we what we see is, <clears throat> using the example of alcohol, that's really interesting thing in, in uh, evangelicalism. In, in the early 50s, around 1950, when Christianity Today first came out, they had a survey of Christian beliefs. And it turned out that of their, their responders, something like 90% believed that partaking in alcoholic beverages was a sin. That was in 1950. In 1980, they came out with another survey. 30 years later, and they asked the same question. 90% believed it was okay to partake of alcoholic beverages. That's a 180 degree shift. That's a huge social shift in, among Christians but it was influenced by the fact that a lot of grace was taught during that time and a lot of corrections were taught. But you still have people who are holdovers and they would say, well, if somebody sees you drinking a glass of wine and they have a proclivity toward alcoholism that they'll just use that to justify. Well, let's push that a little more. We have more of a problem with gluttony in our country. And so somebody walks into a restaurant and sees you eating and that justifies them in always taking a second or third helping then you're contributing to their gluttony. That's not how it works. How this works is you see somebody comes, you go out to dinner with somebody, and you know that this person has a problem with alcohol. And so you say, come on, Joe, have a scotch. Drink a beer. Let's get one. You're pushing it on them. That's what this is talking about is where you are getting this person to actively engage 
in something that would be detrimental to their spiritual life, not just somebody who sees you, you know, 25 yards away having a glass of wine. So the same thing applies, I think, in cer certain circumstances with the illustration I used last week and uh, earlier today, is that there are some believers who are in some environments, whatever that pressure is against their Christianity, they know that they need to go somewhere else, and so they make that decision. And then there are other believers who know they can handle that through the uh, option with Daniel, and there are others who, who can't. So it's up to each individual. But there's going to come a point in many corporations in this country, I think, where it's going to become uh, unacceptable if you hold to Christian values. If you are... Uh, if you, because kids today, if you're under the age of 18, you are being brainwashed to think that there's nothing wrong with homosexuality. And if you think there's something wrong with homosexuality, you are a hater. And a hater is the worst thing in the world that a person can be. And we don't want haters working at our company. We're headed there. We may not see the full development of that in the next 10 or 15 years, but we might. I know predictions I made 10 or 15 years ago would not have been as bad as some things are today. Who would have thought that bakers in this country would be penalized judicially because they wouldn't bake a cake for a wedding between two homosexuals? I often want to turn that around today, but that's another story. First Timothy 4.2 says, Speaking lies and hypocrisy, they have their own conscience seared with a hot iron. That's the idea of producing uh, callous or scar tissue. And Hebrews 10.22 talks about a believer can have an evil conscience. But when Paul talks about conscience, for example, in Acts 23.1, he says, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. This is a figure of speech called the metonymy for a cause for the effect. The conscience is not just having the right norms and standards in your soul. That's passive. That relates to people who just think spiritual life is passive of just being in fellowship. A good conscience here is put for the application of the norms and standards. You have the right values, and therefore, before God, you apply that so that you can stand before God because you have applied the word and you have taken a stand for the biblical, biblical standard. You have done what is right, in other words. That's the same thing, Paul, same way in which he uses it in verse 16. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. He's applying the norms and standards. He doesn't just have the right norms and standards. So this is what Peter is talking about. For this is commendable because of conscience towards God. Because you have certain norms and standards and you're held accountable toward God, you are going to apply those norms and standards and do the right thing in spite of negative consequences, suffering wrongly. He uses it that same way in 1 Peter 3.16, having a good conscience what is that? Your norms and standards, and you apply them so that when you apply them, you're ridiculed and you're defamed as an evildoer. You're called a hater. You hate homosexuals because you're a Christian. It just goes with the territory, so you're a hater. But you have stood your ground 
in grace, remember, in humility and respect. And then we're going to run into it again in, when we get to 321, the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now, the question we're going to have to resolve there is what does that have to do with baptism? And what does that have to do with suffering unjustly and the illustration of Christ that's given to us in verse 18? Because verses 18 down through 22 all go together. So how does conscience and baptism and unjust suffering all tie together? Well, we'll come back to that next time when we start up with verse 18. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study through uh, these principles of Scripture, to be reminded that we are replacing human viewpoint standards in our soul with divine viewpoint standards. But when we sin, we operate on that sin nature and its conscience, and we need to recover through confession, and we need to press on walking by the Spirit, walking by your Word, applying and creating those habit patterns of doing that which your Word says, applying these new norms and standards. It's not just having them and being academically aware of them, but putting them into practice, no matter what it might actually cost us, in terms of friends, in terms of job, career, social standing, whatever it may be. But whatever we do, we have to do it rightly. And part of those standards is that we do it in grace, in humility, and with respect. Father, we pray that you would help us to see how this applies in each of our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.